You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Hey, church. Um, of course, I'm in Israel, and right now I'm on top of Mount Carmel, where Elijah met with the prophets of Baal. Uh, right to the side, as you look off of Mount Carmel, you see the entire valley of uh, Megiddo. Uh, you'll know it best as Armageddon. That's where the last battle on earth will take place. Now, I want to draw your attention back to the prayer of Elijah. Uh, all day long, the prophets of Baal prayed and called out to him. They cried, they cut themselves, they did everything they could to get the attention of Baal. But they couldn't get his attention. He didn't answer because he was no God. He was not real. But then comes Elijah's time. And I want you to listen to his prayer. He comes and he prays and he says this. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the, all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Powerful prayers of God's people do some amazing things. Now you're going to hear a message out of Exodus chapter 17 by Mary on Moses who got on the mountaintop and prayed. Good morning congregation, great to see you. It's great to hear from our pastor, isn't it? They're having a great trip so far. Hey, before we begin, since we're talking about prayer, since pastor's uh, setting us up, in prayer, I want, us, I want us to pray, especially for those in Mississippi impacted by these storms. Some of you, I'm sure, have friends, family. You may have grown up like I did in Mississippi, and I know a number of you did. Uh, so we want to pray. Roland Fork, and I know one of our life group leaders has family in Amory. Thankfully, they're okay. But uh, if we were impacted, I hope someone would stop and pray for us. So let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we Pray in behalf of those in Rolling Fork and Amory and um, other places impacted by these storms. Lord, we know there were many lives that were lost. And Lord, it doesn't catch you by surprise. But um, Lord, we just want to pray in their behalf, especially for the friends and family, those who are mourning and grieving today, and children that may have lost parents and parents that may have lost children and some lost siblings and coworkers. And Father, we just want to pray in the name of Jesus that you'd have mercy on these people. You'd bring revival through this, Lord, that people would turn to you for comfort and peace. They would not turn away from you in anger or frustration, but they would turn to you because you are the God who heals. You are the God who comforts, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So would you have mercy and draw people in that great state to Jesus Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in December 1944, the Allied forces faced a very significant battle. The German footprint in Europe was slowly evaporating, and, but Hitler wasn't going to surrender, at least not at that point. And so on the east side, the Russians were coming up against the Germans, and they didn't have enough 
weaponry or didn't have enough personnel to engage with the Russians. So Hitler turned westward, and he decided that he was going to attack the western side there where the Allied forces were. He thought, hey, if I can penetrate that line, he could divide the, the Allied forces into north and south. He could capture Bastogne, Belgium, and then he could press on toward the sea. And initially, he was successful. He did capture Bastogne, and he did capture the 11,000 U.S. forces from the 101st Airborne Division that were in that city. Well, meanwhile, um, General Eisenhower met with General Patton and others, and they were trying to determine, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? And Patton said, I can initiate a counterattack within 72 hours. He was about 100-plus miles from Bastogne, his troops were. So... Eisenhower gave him the green light and off, off he went. Now, as Patton began to travel north and his troops, he not only had the enemy of Nazi Germany, he had another enemy as well, and it was the enemy of weather. In December 1944, Europe faced the most severe winter it had seen in decades. Sub-zero temperatures, knee-high snow, um, icy conditions. It was very difficult to travel. In fact, it was so cold that the Americans would shoot their M1 semi-automatic rifles that was designed to shoot and keep reloading. It would shoot one time and it would jam. It was that cold. And it became clear by December 23rd, if Patton did not get to Bastogne quickly, the whole 101st Airborne Division, those who were on the ground, would be killed. And so on December 24th, Patton wrote this. He wrote this in his diary. This has been a very bad Christmas Eve. All along our lines, we have received violent counterattacks. It was so bad in Bastogne that the Allied forces went to the hospitals where the wounded were and said, hey, if you can shoot a gun, if you can walk, we need your help out here. And finally, thankfully, Patton would arrive there, but the battle was severe. You see, Patton faced Nazi Germany. He faced weather. You know, battles in life are real, aren't they? You, fa you face battles. I face battles. We all face battles, right? Sometimes they're health battles. Sometimes they're financial battles. Sometimes they're relational in our own family, extended family. There's just battles, and it seems like sometimes they catch us by surprise, and they come, and we're not really sure how to respond. This morning, we're going to continue our series as pastors have been leading us through the book of Exodus. This is the first and only battle in the whole book of Exodus, and we're going to look at this this passage, so Exodus 17, 8 through verse 16. And you remember what God has been teaching Israel so far. You remember in the first 13 verses how Israel cried out to God in their distress, and it says that God heard their cry. Their cry went up to heaven, and God delivered them through plagues, through the Red Sea. And they come out, and they go through the Red Sea, and they come out, and they're praising God. That's what Chapter 15 is about, you can read the Song of Moses, and there's Pastor Lettuce in that. They're worshiping God. They're praising God. And God is leading them now on the way to Mount Sinai, where he's going to meet with them, and he's going to give, he's going to speak to all of Israel. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And so in Exodus 13, it says, he leads them with a cloud by day and with a fire by night. He's guiding his people. And then after Mount Sinai, he's going to lead them further into the promised land eventually. But the question at this point is, would the God who, uh, would that song that the Israelites are singing in chapter 15, would that song continue when the God who delivers becomes the God who tests? Remember the test that, that the last few weeks that pastor's been leading us through? They go to Exodus 15 tomorrow, 
and the water's bitter. They're frustrated. They're quarreling. They're grumbling. Hey, wait, we can't drink this water. Then they go in chapter 16, the wilderness of sin, and hey, we're hungry. Well, there's no food. And so God responds and sends bread from heaven and and sends uh, quail as well. And then they come here to chapter 17, to a place that says it's called Rephidim. It just means, the word just literally means a wide place. They come to a wide place, and now there's no water. At least in the other place, there was water. It was bitter, but now there's no water. And so they keep coming on to these trials. Now, in chapters 14 through 18, or really, or really, yeah, 14 through 18, we think they cover about a period of two months. There's five or six trials they experience here, depending on how you count them, in a period of two months. There's no water, there's bitter water. There's um, lack of food, and then there's the enemy that we're about to talk about this morning. And every time their response is grumbling or quarreling. Grumbling or quarreling. That's the response to these trials. And so they come here now into Exodus 17 and verse 8. And now the enemy is no longer within. It's no longer a thirst. It's no longer a hunger. The enemy is from without. It's an external threat that's now coming against Israel. This is the first time they've been attacked. Remember, the Egyptians chased them, but God delivered them through the Red Sea. And God, the waters went back over the Egyptians, so they didn't have to engage them in battle. But now they're going to have to engage the Egyptians, or the, uh, the Amalekites. Now, as far as we know, they did, Israel didn't have any weaponry. They could have, well, they did plunder the Egyptians, so maybe they grabbed some things there. Maybe they picked some things up along the way as they were walking. <clears throat> but they, they're pretty much uh, without weaponry, and they're now having to fight the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites come up against them at at the place called Rephidim. We drove through this place a number of years ago. It's just a a wide open field. It's rustic. It's remote. There's really, even to this day, there's not much there. And there's a little hill I remember seeing as we were driving. There's a little hill there, and and God said, that's where we think that Moses and Aaron and Hur were on top of that hill. It was not very high, but it was elevated enough to where Israel could look and see them up there praying for them. And so here come the Amalekites. Now, who, what do we know about the Amalekites? Well, they were the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? They're the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember Jacob's the son of promise. Even though he was the deceiver, he's the son of promise. But Esau goes off and he becomes, uh, he has multiple wives. He uh, has numerous children. He becomes a mighty nation. And so the Amalekites are distant cousins from the Israelites. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how many times we've had battles in our own family? And that's what we're seeing here. This is a distant cousin from the, the uh, Israelites, and now they're coming up against the Israelites. Now, Josephus said the Amalekites were the most warlike people in that area. They were nomads. They traveled. They, they were known for domesticating the camel. They would ride camels. They would swiftly defeat people and live off of the supplies from the people they defeated. About a year after this event here in Numbers 14, it's the Amalekites were part of chasing Israel out of the promised land. In Judges chapter 6, when Israel would plant crops, it says the Amalekites and Midianites would come and just set up camp around those crops and would destroy them. Uh, they were just, a, just an irritant. They were a thorn in the side for Israel for hundreds of years. In Judges 7, it says the Amalekites and Midianites would lay along the valley like locusts in abundance um, and camels without number. 
Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when God told Saul through Samuel to kill all of the Amalekites? And remember, he didn't do it. He killed some of them, but he left the king, and, and they kept some of the, the, the plunder. And, um, and because of that, God removed Saul from being king eventually. So he, uh, hundreds of years, this just, just went on and on. David encountered the Amalekites. The Amalekites came and took their wives and children while David and his men were all fighting. And then you look, even in the time of Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4, the Amalekites were still there. They were a thorn in their side for hundreds of years. And uh, so it was a very real battle that they were, they were encountering. Now, why would the Amalekites just come and attack Israel? Well, I think the short answer is the land couldn't support both of them, both groups. You had animals, people, and the Amalekites just said, you know what, both of us cannot coexist here, so, so you're going to need to go. But it was how they attacked Israel is what infuriated God. In Deuteronomy 25, in verse 17 and 18, it says, Moses said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. The Amalekites looked for, they saw the whole caravan of Israel move, and they looked at the very end to the elderly, to the sick, to the disabled, to those who were struggling, and those are the ones they went after first. They had no fear of God. They didn't care about them. They were complete enemies. And so that's how they attacked Israel, and that's how, that's how they picked them off. Now, I want, this morning I was reading in... Um, Psalm chapter 10, and I want to read you this verse because this is exactly what the Amalekites did. In Psalm chapter 10 and verse 4, it's talking about the wicked. The wicked does not seek him. Talking about the wicked does not seek God. And then down in verse 8, it talks about the wicked. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. That's exactly what the Amalekites did. They were waiting to look for those that are struggling, the disabled, the poor, the sick, and those are exactly the ones they went after first. And that's why after this, God says, I will eradicate the memory of Amalekites for generation to generation. They, they, they will be gone. So the first point, I want to give you just several things here. The first is that you and I have enemies that are real and aggressive. Israel faced a real and aggressive enemy here in the Amalekites. You and I have real enemies that are, uh, that are aggressive as well. And I want to give you two particular ones. There may be multiple ones, but there are at least two that I want to share with you this morning. The first is Satan. Satan is our enemy. In Revelation 12, he's called the deceiver. He's called the accuser of our brothers. Um, in 1 Peter 5.8, he's called our adversary. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In 2 Corinthians 2, it says that Satan is clever and he has schemes to attack God's people. He has a scheme to attack your marriage. He has a scheme to attack the church. He has a scheme to attack your children. He has plans. I, I thought this was such an interesting quote by Warren Wiersbe. He said, Satan is a destroyer and a divider when it comes to the church, but in his own kingdom, he is very well organized. He's very well organized. He, he, he's crafty. He's, he, he, he hates your marriage. He hates what you're trying to decide, how you're trying to disciple your children. He's, he, 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 he's not for that. And so he's our enemy. He comes against us. There's oftentimes, especially on a Saturday night, or um, where I was, there's tension in the home, and I think, 
yeah, this is, this is spiritual attack. Like I'm, I'm sharing tomorrow, I'm teaching or preaching. You just sense like there's a heightened spiritual attack. Well, Satan wants to create division. He wants to create discord in the family. And uh, it's, it's, it's very, very, you, you experience that as well, some of you who lead in different areas. Uh, but we also have another enemy, and it's our sinful flesh. You and I are born with a sin nature, a sinful flesh that is, we inherit from Adam and Eve because they disobeyed God. And that sin nature separates us from God. And that sin nature wants to rebel against God. And if you wonder, well, what, what does the sin nature look like? Well, you only have to look any further than Galatians 5. And I'm not going to read all of them to you, but this is in uh, verses 19 and 20. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Those are just a few of them. That is the, that is the sinful nature at work. And you, every one of us has a sin nature. And we, we want to be right. We want to have the last word in a conflict. We, all of those things rages within us. But thankfully, when you and I are saved, we are immediately filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit becomes to live within us, then he begins to produce fruit. And that fruit is completely opposite of what I just read to you. The fruit of the Spirit, you know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 as well, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, Goodness, self-control, completely opposite of the flesh. But as a Christian now, we have the Holy Spirit, but also still have this sin nature, and there is a battle going on. There is a war every single day. Am I going to give in to the flesh, or am I going to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's why Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5. It is a constant, ongoing, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be controlled by the, my sin nature. I want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And there's this constant battle going on. But thankfully, Romans 8 says we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in defeat. We don't have to live in, oh, I've just got this sin nature. No, we're, we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. There is victory in the Christian life. And there's a key to victory in this text that I want to show you now. now all of that was really just set up here for uh, the story here in Exodus 17. So the threat now comes against the Israelites and Moses says to, said to Joshua, verse 9, Choose for, for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. We're introduced to Joshua here for the first time. And uh, Exodus thirty three eleven says he was a young man. One source said that he would have been about 45 years of age. So, hey, if you're in your 40s, you're a young man, you're a young woman, right? That's, that's what it's saying about Joshua here. He appears on the scene here. Now, he must have been pretty well known because there's not a lot of introduction. It just mentions his name. And so Joshua is going to lead the military effort. Moses is going to lead the spiritual effort. Two, but both are important. We're going to talk about both of those, okay? But, but, but uh, Joshua is going to have the sword. Moses is going to have the staff. Now, this is the same staff. Moses took down into Egypt, and it's the same one he held up at the Red Sea in uh, just a, a couple, a few chapters ago. So we assume here, man, the, the staff of God is involved here. That it represents the power of God. That God's going to do something supernatural here. But notice, that, notice Moses didn't go up here alone. It says Aaron and Hur went with him. Now Aaron was Moses' brother. We, he's already, we've already seen him. The first time we see Hur. Now, we don't know exactly who her was. Um, Josephus said that it was, it was Miriam's brother. 
You know, Miriam was Moses' sister, so perhaps this was his brother-in-law. Either way, he's, he's some type of leader in Israel. So Israel engaged in battle with the Amalekites. And verse 11 says that whenever Moses held up his hand, so he has a staff of God in his hand. Now, I don't, we're not told whether he's holding it up vertically or whether he's holding it horizontally. We, we don't know. My, my thought is he's holding it up like this vertically. And so whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, that just lets you know right there, Amalek had the superior army. Without the power of God involved, uh, Israel was losing. But we need to understand first, what does it mean when it says Moses held up his hands? The term for prevail means to be strong or mighty. So when, when he held up his hand, Israel was strong and mighty. When he lowered it, they would get defeated. In, in uh, 1 Kings 8.22, remember when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem? It said he held up his hand, verse, eight, verse 22, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and then he began to pray. Psalm 63, verse 4, David prayed, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Nehemiah 8, 6 says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered him, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. They're worshiping God. Psalm 28, 2 says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Lifting up hands implies prayer. It means I'm reaching up to heaven because I need help. God, I'm lifting up my burdens to you. I'm, I'm looking to you for strength. So as Moses lifted up the staff, he was interceding and praying for Israel. And when he did that, they would win. And when he lowered the staff, they would lose. So that's, that's what's going on here. But Moses struggled to keep his arms in the air for a long period of time. It says his hands grew heavy or grew weary. The word really means heavy. Now, over to, you know, you have to think back to, uh, remember Deuteronomy chapter 34? That's where Moses died. And it said he died at 120 years of age. And it says his eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. In other words, he could still see really well and he was still physically strong. That was 40 years after this. So Moses is about 80 years old here. So Moses is not struggling here because he's an elderly man and he's feeble. He's struggling here because the battle was long. Some of you have been in battles for years. You've engaged in uh, something with a family member. I was meeting with doing a pastor chat recently, and uh, we prayed for this, this sweet lady's son, but it had been four or five years where they've just been estranged from each other. See, some of you engage in battles, and they go on for a long period of time, and they are exhausting. And that's what's happening with Moses, Moses here. He's battling gravity. He's battling time. There's only so much, so long he can hold this thing up. And so he, he, he grows weary. He, he gets tired. And so that's, that's what's happening. And some of you know that. You've been in battles for a long period of time, and it's just emotionally, physically, it's spiritually exhausting. And so Israel here, this is not just a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. Samuel Zwemer was an American missionary to the Muslim world for years. He lived in uh, Egypt, Lebanon. He lived in the Middle East for a while. He eventually became a missionary professor at, uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary. Here's what he said about prayer, on intercessory prayer. Prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. It is a workout. It takes effort. It takes concentration. 
There's, that's, Jesus is sweating like drops of blood when he prayed. There's an intensity there. It requires effort. Remember Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras was a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Where are the Moseses and Epaphrases today? Where are the men and women of God who said, man, I will intercede, I will give my life to prayer, I will stand in the gap, and I will go to a quiet place where I'm, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to talk to God, I'm going to raise my hands up to him in prayer, because I realize victory is not just in human effort, it ultimately comes in uh, from God and from the power of God. But hey, it's hard to get people to pray. It's hard to get people to become intercessory prayers. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was a student at Dallas Seminary, and um, we, we were required to go to chapel based on how many days of classes you had. So if you had like two days of class a week, you'd go to 20 chapels per semester. If you had four, you'd go to 40. Um, so I don't, I don't remember <clears throat> exactly how many. Sometimes semesters I had 40 to go to, or sometimes 30. But the chapels were always very good. Sometimes they'd have faculty speaking. A lot of times they'd bring in the, the, the big-name preachers. You know, our, our pastors preached there a couple of times. Uh, Chuck Swindoll was a regular. Every semester he's preaching there. Tony Evans, Chip Ingram. Um, one occasion, Dr. John Piper preached, it was standing room only. Uh, Swindoll preaches, man, you can hardly find a seat. Tony Evans is there, oh, it's, it, you, you, can't, you can't find a seat. But then we would have prayer chapels, and you could sit anywhere you want because hardly anybody's there. And these are people training for ministry. And it just shows you how little we value prayer, how little we really value prayer, and calling on God for help. Well, Moses was exhausted. And thankfully, he, he went up to this hill, and it says Aaron and Hur took a stone. And I wondered, did they have to roll the stone up the hill? I, I don't know. We're not told. But they go, and Moses, thankfully, is able to sit down. He's able to sit on this stone. And I bet he's able just to catch his breath and say, oh, gosh, thank you. My arms are tired. And, and, and now he's able to put his arms up like this. And, and Aaron and her now are, are standing. I think they would have probably interlocked their arms, their, their hands like this. And they would have been standing there just supporting him. And I, they would have gotten tired too, you know, for hours. It said and they fought until sundown. So they, they're standing on either side, sitting there holding up Moses' arms. And because of that, Moses is able to keep his arms raised up. Now imagine how that would have encouraged the troops, and Joshua and the troops out there fighting, they can look back and go, ha, huh, he's praying. That's why we're winning. Somebody's up there praying, and Aaron and her are doing their part, and, and, and God's given us victory. So the staff of God remained in the air. And because of that, it says that Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites. He defeated them because God gave them supernatural victory. Here's the second point. We experience victory when we persist in prayer. We experience victory when we persist in prayer. The sword in this story represents human responsibility. There is a place for human effort. This, this, Joshua had to, Moses told him to fight. So that, yes, Israel had a responsibility, but the, the staff represents prayer. The staff represents divine sovereignty. It's human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're both in play and they're both important. But prayer was the secret weapon 
that Moses employed in order to defeat the Amalekites. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's no uh, question here where victory came from. It came when God gave them victory, not because they had a superior military, because God was gracious and merciful. And so when you and I face battles in life, it is the sword and the staff. It's both. There are things that we're responsible to do, but there's things that only God can do. And so it's the sword and the staff. So when you think about the Christian life, it's the sword. There's things that I need to do. I need to put forth effort in reading the Bible. I need to put forth effort in praying and other spiritual disciplines. But ultimately, I've got to rely upon God. I've got to cry out to him and say, God, I can't live this life on my own. I have a sinful flesh that wants to rebel against you. And so it's the sword and it's the staff. And some of you in the Christian life, you're over here. It's all about, well, I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to get up earlier, and I'm going to do this. And you're frustrated. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I do the things I hate, he says, because he still has a sin nature just like we do. And oftentimes we find ourselves saying things, thinking things, and we go, what, what is going on? Why would I even say that? Why, why would I, what, what is happening here? Well, we still have a sin nature. That's why we've got to rely on the staff. That's why we've got to rely on the Lord in prayer. Some of you in your marriage, you're relying only on the, the sword. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try hard. I'm going to love her. I'm going to do this. And you're not praying together and you're not experiencing the power of God in your marriage. Listen to this. Um, the National Association of Marriage Enhancement, based in Phoenix, Arizona, they did a study on 1,156 couples. 1,156 couples prayed together every day. Only one of those couples got a divorce. Less than 1%. So put positively, over 99% of couples who prayed together every day are still married. See, it's the sword and it's the staff. It's both. It's, it, it, it takes prayer. Some, in our parenting, what, what I'm learning, some of you, you have older children, you learned this a long time ago, you can't change a child's heart, can you? You can discipline, you can instruct, you can, all those things that we should be doing, but only God can work in their hearts, isn't that right? See, it's the sword and it's a staff. It's, it takes both. And, and it, it's, it's that way in, in, in our jobs and so many other areas of life. It's not just human effort. It's I've got to depend on God. In his book called The Weapon of Prayer, Ian Bounds wrote this, prayer is the language of those who need something, something which they themselves cannot supply, but which God has promised them and for which they ask. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I will answer you, the Lord says. That's the first part. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things for which you do not know. So call to me and I will answer you. So in those moments you say, God, I, I don't know what to do. God, would you, so that's when we pray. God, would you just give me wisdom? That's what James talks about. If you like wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. Lord, I don't know what to do. How do we educate our children? God, what, what do I do in this situation at work? Ask God, and he'll give it to you. It's the sword, and it's the staff. And that applies to the church as well. If we're going to experience any movement of God in our church, it'll be through prayer. Yeah, the, 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 the sword's necessary. There's, there's ministry that we're responsible. We're responsible to share the gospel. We're responsible to prepare, to teach, all of those things. But if, if God's going to move, it's going to be because we cry out to him in prayer and he graciously responds and moves according to his will. I, I know you were just appreciative and amazed at 
the revival last month in Asbury, right? Asbury in Kentucky. I just, there were a couple of things I thought were really interesting. Do you know where this revival happened in Hughes Auditorium? That's not a real impressive auditorium, right? It looks kind of dated. Um, it, it's certainly not a, a fresh, modern, multi-purpose facility at all. It was built in 1929, has wooden flip seats. You know of any church that still has wooden flip seats? Uh, but that's, that, that's what Hughes Auditorium has. Yet when God's presence descended on this place, people were lined up to get in there. There was a social media, the Atlantic said that a social media um, views as of February 23rd, 100 million people had viewed the revival. People couldn't get enough. They mean, I, I just want to be a part of the presence of God. People are driving all over the place. You know how it started? They had a normal, regularly scheduled chapel service on February the 8th. And right after the, the service, the, the, the minister that closed in prayer that day said this. He asked God to revive us by your love. And then about 20 students just kind of hung around. They lingered. They prayed. They worshiped God. And next thing you know, minutes turned into hours that turned into days of just continual worship and calling upon God. They didn't have a Christian celebrity preaching. They didn't have the most up-to-date uh, building. The, they didn't have a Grammy Award-winning singer there performing. They just had people calling out to God in prayer. So it's the same, not just personally, but corporately. Do you know we have a prayer room in the church? I know a number of you know that. It's down by the preschool. We have a handful of us that normally pray there on Sunday mornings between 8 and 9 in the morning. I'd love for some of you to join us. I know some of you are in life group or you're in here singing. You're not able to, but, but if you could, and we'd love to have you. I'd love for us to have to move to a bigger room because we have so many people wanting to get in there and pray and just call out to God. There's, there's certain prayer points we go through, but we all just kind of go around and pray as the Lord leads. It's nothing super formal. I'd love to have people praying during our services. I guarantee you we'd see more people saved and more movement in here if we had people just calling out to God. You see, it's the sword and it's the staff. It's both. It's both. But both are important. Let me share one more thing with you here quickly. Verses 14 through 16, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. See, the, the, uh, God's already looking ahead to at some point the mantle's going to be passed to Joshua and he's going to be leading Israel. And, and God wanted Joshua to know, hey, when you get in the land and you face the Amalekites again, you need to know that God's already given you victory. God's already given you strength. He's, the wind is already there. All you have to do is possess what God's already given you. So Moses, or God told Moses to write it down. And in response, um, it says Moses built an altar and called the name of it. So I believe this is not just a name for God. This is a name of the altar that Moses built. It says, the Lord is my banner. The word there is Jehovah Nissi. The, the Lord is my banner. Banner refers not to a flag or, or something like we made something made of fabric like we might envision. It refers to a pole that's lifted up in the air to offer to signal instruction. Like it's often used in a military context where, mili where military men are fighting. They look over here and they see a pole lifted up and they go, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's what we need to do. It offers instruction or it offers a place where they can gather up again and get instruction for the next phase. So he says, the Lord is my banner. And what he's talking about is the staff of God. He said, in, in, in the confusion, in, in the, the chaos, and when I didn't know what to do, I held up my hand to heaven, and God gave us power, and God gave us instruction of what to do next. 
That's what, that's what he's saying. So he's worshiping God here after God's given him victory. And he's, he's saying every time we go through chaos in life, every time we experience confusion, we need to call upon God and worship him and wait for him to give us instruction and wait for, us to, for him to give us what the next step is. And the way we find that out is through prayer. It's just through an open Bible, on our knees before the Lord and just praying and God, would you speak to my heart? And often when I do that, God will put a passage on my heart you know, Psalm 27, whatever it is. And I start reading and it just speaks to exactly what I'm going through. Well, that's what Moses did. God gave him victory. This story, or I forgot one of the most important parts. Um, Right after he says, the Lord is my banner, uh, it says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So as Moses was lifting up his, his staff there and praying, his hand was literally touching the throne of God in prayer. That's what he's saying. So our, our prayers, that's what, when we are cr- crying out to God and casting our burdens on him, we are touching the throne of God and saying, God, I need your strength. God, I need your help. I, I can't do this. And uh, that's, how, that's how powerful prayer can be. Now, this story for Israel, it was designed to teach them, hey, you're not going to be able to make it on your own in the wilderness. You're going to face people way more powerful than you, way more crafty than you. Uh, You're not going to be able to face them. So you're going to have to learn to depend on God in prayer. That's that's what he's teaching Israel here. They They weren't strong enough to do it. But ultimately, this passage is teaching us something about Jesus. You see, Moses is a type of Jesus in this story. Just as Moses went on top of a hill to pray, Jesus went on the hill of Mount Calvary to give his life for you and me. Just as Moses held up the staff in his hands, a piece of wood, Jesus stretched out his hands on a piece of wood and was nailed to it to pay for our sin. Just as Moses was between two men holding up his hands, Jesus was between two thieves on the cross. Just as Moses was there interceding, And praying for Israel to defeat their enemies, Jesus was on the cross praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Just as Jesus interceded and and, and sat down, um, or just as Moses sat down to intercede, Jesus, after he ascended back into heaven, sat down having completed his work of redemption. Moses continued to pray while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. It says, until the going down of the sun. But according to Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for those who love him. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is praying for you. Romans 8 talks about that as well, that Jesus is interceding for us. Then we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us as well. So should we pray more individually and corporately? Absolutely. But this is not a message that you go, oh, great, I just got to try harder. I got to go, I got to get up earlier. I got to try. This is not a try harder message. This is a message that we should look back to the cross and remember what Jesus has done. And out of my gratitude and out of my love for him, yes, I should engage in prayer. And I should, I should rely upon him more. And I should spend more time here, but not as a way to gain more favor with him, but just as a way to show my love for him because he's already won the victory. Uh, victory does not depend on me. It depends on what he's already done for me. Now, um, some of you are in the midst of a battle right now, and you just need to look back at the cross, and you need to look back at what Jesus has done, and you need to remember, you know what? My sin has been paid in full. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to be in this battle forever. 
Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He will come again to get us. Um, here's our final point. We have victory through Jesus' work and intercession. We have victory through Jesus' work and intercession. Romans 6.11 says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that sinful flesh is real, Satan's real, but they have no authority over us. Paul says in Romans 8, you're not debtors to the flesh as if you, I don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh has no authority over me. Uh, Jesus has authority over me. I'm I'm greater is the one who's in me than the one who's in the world. So I'm, I'm a child of God, just as we just sang earlier. I love at the end of the book of Job, remember Job's words when he says to God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So be encouraged today, my friend. You don't have to live in defeat of, oh, I'm just, I've got so many enemies. Jesus has already given you victory, and those enemies are real, but they're also temporary. Let me give you just a few application points. First, sometimes we will experience multiple trials in a short period of time. In a period of two months, they experience five or six trials just like that. Sometimes it is something with their car, it's something with a house, it's something at your job, it's something with the family, and it just seems like, man, this just keeps coming. The child's always sick. There's just, it's on and on and on. And what God was teaching Israel, as we said, they were, he was teaching them, hey, look to me. Don't look at your own strength. Don't look at your own ability. Look, learn how to depend on me. Second, embrace the role of serving someone else. Joshua was a young man here. He had a bright future ahead of time, ahead of him. You know, Joshua was named over 200 times in Scripture. But this is our first encounter with him, and he's an assistant. He doesn't say anything in the passage, but he's out there fighting, just doing exactly what Moses told him to do. Embrace the role of, of serving somebody. Some of you are young, ambitious. You dream of leading your own business. You dream of leading a board. And you all these things that you're excited about, and that's fine. But... Joshua would need every bit of wisdom he learned from Moses when it was his turn to lead. Did you know in Joshua 8, 30, it says, Joshua built an altar to the Lord when Israel renewed the covenant. Where do you think he learned how to do that? Right here, because Moses built an altar. He watched, he learned. And then when it became his turn, he, he did what Moses did. He built an altar and worshiped God. Third, write down what God is teaching you. Remember, he, God told Moses, write it down. Write down what God's teaching you. Some, some of you are into journaling, and that's fine. I, I, don't, I don't particularly journal, but what I do, I, I go through a Bible, and I, I'm writing stuff in it. I'm writing what I'm praying, and I do it for a particular person. I've already done it for all of my children. Right now, I'm doing it for one of my nephews. So I'm writing things, insights I think God gives me. I write it in there. I write in there, hey, uh, I'm praying. Here, here's how I'm praying for you, and one day I'll give it to him. One day I'll give it to my children. They'll have that. So write, write down what God's teaching you. And I learned that from somebody else. I didn't come up with that. But write, write it down because some, someday that'll encourage someone else. They can look back and go, wow, man, I had no idea. Look how he was praying. Look how she was praying. Uh, imagine getting that from your mom or your dad. Uh, imagine giving that to your children as a gift. Here's how mom and dad was praying for you all, all those years ago. And then finally, remember that Jesus is our perfect mediator. Moses was Israel's mediator here, but, you know, Moses was a sinner just like us. But Jesus uh, is the perfect mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our perfect mediator. Well, <clears throat> General Patton continued to push north. 
He's pushing toward Bastogne. He's going as hard as he can. And one particular day, he went all the way through the night just trying to get there. On December 22nd, he engaged the southern line of the Nazis there, heading to Bastogne, engaged them in battle. And on, on um, uh, December 25th, finally, Christmas Day, they were, re- were rewarded and recaptured Bastogne, liberated the 11,000 um, U.S. soldiers there. And then a few days later, this is in a letter to his wife, he wrote this. The relief of Bastogne is the most brilliant operation we have thus far performed and is, in my opinion, the outstanding achievement of, the, of this war. Now the enemy must dance to our tune, not we to his. So what was it that changed things? What was it that gave the Allied forces victory in spite of Nazi forces, in spite of weather? Well, there was a rainy day in early December, and General Patton asked the chaplain, the head chaplain of the Third Army, he said, um, I want you to pray. And so the head chaplain put together this prayer card, and he gave it to General Patton, and Patton ordered 250,000 of those prayer cards to be sent all to all the troops. This is what the prayer card said. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. On December the 12th, they were sent out, and we think they would have received them all by December 23rd. And it was on that day, December 23rd, the weather changed. The clouds lifted. It was a clear, cool, crisp 10 degrees. But now because it was clear, they could employ their air force. And because the Allied forces had air superiority, they could attack from the air. They could send replenishments and food and supplies to the troops on the ground. And General Patton was so overwhelmed at the sudden change of weather, he awarded that chaplain with the Bronze Star. You see, General Patton realized it's not just the sword. It's not just human effort. Prayer is also needed. It's the sword and the staff. Make sure you employ both in the battles of life. Would you stand with me and bow your heads? Maybe for some of you, the first step today is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've heard about Jesus, you've known about him, but you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, but he made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. The way you become the righteousness of God is just believing upon what Jesus has already done for you, receiving him by faith. And my friend, that's your next step if you've never done that. Others of you, you've, you've made that decision, but maybe you've been relying on your, your own strength. You've been relying on the sword. You've been relying on human effort, but you've, you've not been in prayer very often. And maybe today's just a morning of recommitment. You want to say, Lord, I want to give more of my life to prayer. I want to be an intercessor. I want to pray for my grandchildren more. I want to pray for my children. I want to pray for my church. I want to pray for my, our pastors. I want to be an Aaron and a Her. I want to hold up the hands of my, my pastors and leaders at church and, and, and just, I don't, have to, I don't have to be a vocal leader. I just, I just want to stand there and hold their hands while they pray, while they serve, while they lead. Whatever God's saying to you, I encourage you to respond in obedience. Father, thank you for the word of God. Lord, we, we surrender ourselves to you 
and to the authority of your word. And we want to respond with a yes to whatever you're telling us. So I pray you would speak and we would respond in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.